The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Excellent Podcast. Today, we will be talking with Cyrus Hamilton Ferguson, Assistant Director of Student Disability Services and a longtime employee at Cornell. We will talk with Cyrus about several topics that are particularly meaningful in today's world of work, including how the intersection of work and life has shifted over time, mental health in the workplace, and how we can all shape our own sense of inclusion and belonging. My name is Aaron Semblechase. My name is Toral Patel. And you are listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Welcome, Cyrus, to our podcast. Aaron and I are so excited to have you joining us today. Thank you. So just to get us started, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about the pronouns that you use and what you do here at Cornell. Sure. So my name is Cyrus Hamilton Ferguson, pronouns he, him, his. I am an assistant director in student disability services, where I have been both in that office and at Cornell for the last 19 years. That's right. Cyrus and I, our listeners who know me well know I used to work in student disability services and had the pleasure of working with Cyrus for many years. Yes. And one thing that we um, have in common, well, we have a lot of things in common, actually, (laughs) but one thing in particular that we have in common is that our disability experience was not necessarily unique to just the job that we did, right? Um, You know, obviously that was a big part of our role, but we both had a disability experience outside the job uh, in our personal and daily life. So Cyrus, I'd love for you to share more about what your connection to disability is outside of your role at SDS. Sure, yeah. So for myself, you know, I I have... uh anxiety and OCD, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, I remember, you know, when I was younger, you know, my, my pediatrician would, my mom would take me to the doctor, you know, and uh, the, the pediatrician would say, you know, Cyrus, you just need to calm down, you know, <laughs> and I remember him telling my mom's like, you know, he's just so anxious all the time. Um, he just needs to relax, you know, this was back in the 80s, you know, so it wasn't, you know, his recommendation wasn't, oh, he can talk about it or connect him with the therapist. It was none of that. It was just calm down. <laughs> so, <laughs> Like that should just naturally come to you and be very and an easy thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, why didn't I think of that? Just, yeah. just calm <laughs> yeah. down. Okay? It's, it's amazing. Uh, and then, you know, the obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, that's actually a little bit better now, but it was, uh, at one point in my life, it was quite debilitating, actually. Um, you know, I was uh, constantly late for everything. I just could not get out of that compulsive loop, you know. So, you know, whether it was checking doors or checking my surroundings or something, you know, it was it was something like that. And it was fortunately, like I said, it's it's better now through um, some uh, behavioral changes and modifications. So, so yeah. Um, my son also, are, are, so we have two children and uh, our oldest son, uh, he has epilepsy um, and also some developmental disabilities um, as well. And my husband has anxiety, depression, PTSD and ADHD. So, you know, in our household, sometimes, you know, our just who we are and and 
how our various symptoms like manifest can make for some interesting dynamics. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Cyrus, and tying that into your role here at Cornell, can you tell us a little bit more about what you do in student disability services? Yeah, sure. So um, my day-to-day responsibilities is working with students and helping them develop accommodation plans to meet their needs. You know, my role in SDS has changed over the years. You know, I've worked with students in uh, our auxiliary services or providing uh, print-related accommodations to students. My role now as assistant director is more on the front lines of things with really meeting with students, assessing what their needs are, and really, you know, listening and hearing their experiences around their disability experiences, and then translating that into how can we as a university provide access to these individuals and to our student population so that, you know, their disability symptoms or functions of a disability isn't necessarily a consideration as to how successful they are on our campus. So, you know, it's, it's a very important job you know, that I I take seriously every day because it can have such a profound impact on students. So it's it's important to make sure that we, you know, are getting it right. I'm curious, Cyrus, you know, you became a parent of children with disabilities during your time working in SDS, right? Like you didn't start as a parent. That that happened later. So I'm curious, have you noticed any sort of influence or impact since you've taken on that role of being a parent in terms of how that maybe has affected how you relate to students with disabilities or how you relate to the student's parents? (laughs) Anything like that. I'm just kind of curious whether that's impacted your work style or your approach or anything like that. And I guess, and I would be curious on the opposite of that too, right? Like how does that also impact your home, right? Do you do you feel like as a parent that does this for a living as well, you relate to your children differently? Good question. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. So both I I would I'm actually curious on both ends. Yeah. yeah. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so you know, I, I have to say it has so this this journey of mine has really given me more empathy towards parents actually because now I can see myself in some of these parent <laughs> roles and yep. the parent who's really calling our office and wanting to advocate for their student because that was their role, you know, in, in high school. You know, I I sympathize more with, with what they are, are trying to do and I can see myself and I have been that parent actually and I, I would cringe. I was like, oh my gosh, I am the parent that I talk to, <laughs> you know, but you know, it is, I have a better understanding and appreciation of, you know, the, the journey that parents and the transition actually that they have to take. It's essential for that transition to happen from high school to college and the role that the parent has. And I am definitely more understanding. I've had to make that transition myself, um, and it's not easy. So I I definitely, you know, understand where parents are coming from a little bit better uh, now having to navigate, you know, IEP meetings with with my son and now looking at... um, different colleges and trying to make sure that he is set up for success. And I said it, I said the S word, success, you know, where as a parent, I, I that's the word that comes naturally to me. I want him to succeed. Um, and we all want 
our, our students to succeed, whether you're a parent or working on our campus. So, you know, that it's, it's been an interesting journey for me. Um, now, how this has affected my home life. <laughs> wow. I, I have to say, you know, my, our, our oldest son, he sometimes, you know, he has days where he is feeling a little down on himself. You know, we all have those days. And I didn't, I didn't share this earlier, but our, our son uh, is adopted. So with that comes a lot of trauma, even just outside of disability, right? Uh-huh. So, you know, some days, you know, he is really thinking about um, his own personal life and his own personal journey, uh, both as, as uh, a child who spent time in the foster care system and who was adopted into a family and is is trying to figure out who he is as a person with multiple disabilities, right? So, you know, he sometimes is down and I, I say, you know, okay, you know, I will come to your pity party. I will sit with you. We will have a good time, but we cannot stay here forever. You know, we will talk we will cry. Well, I cry, as Aaron knows. I'm a crier. <laughs> I'm a crier. He does not really cry. Uh, but, you know, we would do whatever we need to do, but we cannot stay here, you know. So, and I think a part of that, too, is um, working with students with with disabilities. You know, sometimes he says, well, you know, I can't do something because you know, I can't remember, or, you know, I have difficulty remembering things, Dad. And I was like, yeah, I know that, but how are you going to fix that? <laughs> so, and how can I help you figure out how to fix that? So, you know, and I think that comes in from working with students with disabilities um, for so long to where I, I know the potential and I know the pitfalls if you allow yourself to focus only on what you cannot do or what you think you cannot do. You know, there are resources out there to help all of us, you know. So it's just a matter of tapping into those resources and knowing, you know, I'm going to have to do things a little bit differently because that's what I need for myself. And I tell that to my son and, you know, I shut him down pretty quickly. And he's <laughs> like, okay, what do I need to do? So, <laughs> so I, I love that expression. Okay, we can go to the pity party for a little while. We can have a good time there, but then we're going to be leaving. Really, we're not staying at the party all day or all night. And I just think that's actually very powerful because you are validating, you're completely validating his feelings. You're not, you're not dismissing them. And you're trying to make sure he understands that that's not the end-all, be-all, you know, that, that, that there is a path forward. And I, I think you've heard me say, I've always said that parents who have children with disabilities, even if the parent doesn't have a disability of their own, they still have a disability experience. Because right. being a parent is a completely different experience than with the child. It's not better or worse or harder or easier. Not that at all. It just there is a different type of experience that you're having as a parent right. um, that needs to be appreciated and, and respected and understood. And I love that you, um, your home life has helped you become a more patient person with parents and your work life. <laughs> uh, I can empathize. That was a stretch. 
That was yes. always hard. And I would have to remind myself, okay, how would you have wanted your mother to have been treated if she made this phone call? I need to remember that, you know. Um, but it's, it can be hard. <laughs> it can be hard, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think, Cyrus, for me, what really resonated is uh, is the way you talk to your son about, hey, great, we know that this is something that you struggle with, but what are you going to do about it? Right. And it's this idea that like exactly what the two of you mentioned is the parents calling in and advocating for their children. But I love this idea of you teaching your son to advocate for himself um, yes. as well. So I think that's really what stood out to me. I thought was, that was great. I loved it. Yes. I always say, you know, I'm not going to always be around forever. He was like, well, yes, you are. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was like, well, my point is I can't be with you every single hour. And we spend a lot of time together now. But as you think about going off to, to college and things like that, you're going to have to learn how to navigate the world. So, you know, that used to keep me up at night. It's like, oh, my gosh, what if this happens? What if that mm -hmm. happens? But he has made no secret about he plans to, to live at home uh, <laughs> until he's 30. So. <laughs> that would actually be impressive if he leaves at 30 nowadays. <laughs> yeah, and me, I'm like, I never want him to leave and go off, yeah. but, um, you know... Well, tell him I advocate for that because it's coming from a culture where the kids don't necessarily, we don't leave our parents, right? Like yeah. we live in this whole extended family concept for the rest of our life. Like that makes total sense to me. So. I <laughs> love it. Thank I will tell him that. <laughs> yes. yes. Cyrus, I think you just illustrated really well an example of how your work and your life intersect, yeah. <laughs> you know, and clearly overlap. And the reality is that is something that I do think that we are all realizing a lot more, probably partially because of the pandemic, you know, when work and life really had to overlap in a lot of ways. But we've also, as a workplace, been talking more about this idea of work-life balance or well-being or how work and life come together and wellness. I'm wondering, when you think about those concepts, wellness, you know, workplace wellness and well-being, work-life balance, what comes to mind for you when you think about those concepts? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think in, in some respects it has become more difficult to find, or it had become more difficult to find balance uh, during the pandemic, you know. Um, but I think, you know, in part that's what happens when, you know, your dining room table becomes your, your office your classroom <laughs> uh, for, for our oldest son at the time and um, a college lecture because my partner, my husband, was uh, teaching from home. So it was Grand Central Station mm -hmm. in many respects, <laughs> different things going on. And I, and I think the distinguishing lines between each of those activities blurred, at least for me, naturally, I, I got a feeling of, um, you know, being a bit unbalanced you know, trying to re-compartmentalize everything. Aaron knows this. I'm, I'm huge on compartmentalizing my life, you know, my home. You know, one reason I bought my home was it had rooms for everything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I was at the time opposed to open floor spaces uh -huh. or open floor plans. But, you know, I will say that the experience Having come through the bulk of the pandemic, the tragedy of the pandemic, you know, I, we're still in it. But uh, having come through that initial start, I think some of the things that we learned 
has been immensely beneficial and, and forced us in a way to reconsider what it means to have work-life balance. Yeah, I actually agree with you. I don't think we're ever going back to the traditional nine to five the way we've had it before, right? I think the pandemic has made that huge shift in, in the larger society, not necessarily in any one industry per se. I think it's everywhere, right? I don't know that we're ever going back. And, you know, I do feel that it's going to take us a while to figure out what really works for each of us. But, you know, it's it's a change that, to your point, like there's been some benefits and some negatives for each of us, right? And, and depending right. on kind of what is happening on any particular day. You know, what really struck me and it's one of those things where I knew this, but I think it just hit me differently hearing you say it, Cyrus, is that in your case, and I'm sure this is the case for a lot of people, you had multiple things happening in your home. You had a child trying to go to school at home. You had you trying to do your job at home. You had your husband trying to teach from home. So it wasn't just your work life that were intersecting and overlapping. You now were getting a much closer glimpse <laughs> as to what your son's school life was like and what your husband's teaching life was like and vice versa. You were all hearing, I'm sure, each other's work, you know, and, and hearing, you know, what your other... So talk about making it even harder to have a separation because, you know, you can't just come home and choose what you're going to tell your husband and your child about your day because they heard it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and vice versa, you heard heard them yes. and, and so I guess I don't know I just, just kind of realized that it was, you know now everybody's getting an extra special glimpse whether you want them to have that or not into what your reality is you know that is that is so true Aaron and I want to say that I have such a profound renewed appreciation for teachers you know Jamie our, our son he was in special education class the teachers there they were phenomenal. Like my experience was great. You know, they had packets of information ready to pick up that I would pick up, oftentimes in between my own work meetings. <laughs> um, they provided free lunches for um, a good long while to students. And, you know, it. I just, I got a glimpse into their work as, as professionals and teachers. And, you know, it's, it's not easy. And uh, it took a little bit to find our routine, but we made it fun. You know, you know, I would sit there. Jamie would sit across the table from me. So I was on Zoom or doing my work. He was reading and doing his work. Um, and, you know, we spent a lot of time, like, uh, breaking down different articles uh, that he might have had to read as part of his lesson. And I spent a lot of time reframing what he was reading in ways that he could understand it and grasp the what it was trying to say. So I learned a lot. I learned a lot about health because it was a health course. <laughs> learned a lot about the Civil War because he took um, uh, a Civil War class. So, you know, it was it was interesting. I appreciate your shout out to the teachers and the special ed teachers because I do think that that you know, like we were talking before, yeah, you're trying to make sure that your son knows, you know, how to advocate for himself, but also is putting measures in place to be able to live, you know, an effective, successful life. But we also know that it's important to make sure that the systems are providing the necessary access and support, right? Whether it be, at, you know, in higher ed, are we, are we making sure that accommodations are in place? Because it shouldn't all fall on the student to try to figure it out and fit in and do what they have to do, right? That's the, that's the reason why we have access accommodations. And 
for special ed. They have to still be making sure that they're crafting an education that's accessible to the student, you know? So it, it's, it, they're both important. The, the self-work is important, but the system support is important as well. Absolutely. You know, as we're talking about this whole concept of how work-life has evolved or the concepts of work-life balance, also bringing to mind for me that I also think we're paying a lot more attention to this idea of workplace mental health. And I don't know if you all are aware of this, but even our own United States Surgeon General has recently created a, a framework for workplace mental health and well-being. So an actual framework of suggesting these are the things that workplaces need to think about when it comes to employee mental health and well-being, which I think is huge. You know, that our top-ranking medical professional is saying, you all need to think about this. And I think for some people that might be a challenge because we also historically have thought about mental health as being a very private thing, not something that you talk openly about, not something that you bring into the work. So I'm wondering what you think about that, Cyrus, in terms of, you know, how how should this topic of employee mental health be considered or addressed by, by our workplace nowadays? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. You know, I I always find this topic a bit interesting, right? Because we all have mental health, every single one of us. Yet it's something that we are always hesitant to acknowledge, right? And, you know, I, I get it. Historically, we, you know, as a society, have not always been supportive of people with declining mental health or impaired mental health. You know, there are plethora of challenges around racial discrimination, access to affordable and substantive health care. You know, and the list goes on that, that all impacts everyone's access to mental health um, services. And there's also this, you know, stigma um, societal stigma around mental health, you know, and it, it should be something that is talked about and should be just as common in conversation as heart health or bone health. You know, our mental health drives how we see and experience and even interact with the world around us, you know, and for me, it's such a profound part of who each of us are. So, you know, I'm glad that the conversation around mental health is starting to happen, uh, and it's happening in diverse places, more importantly. Cyrus, there, there are two tidbits here that I absolutely love in what you just said. The first one is that we all have mental health. I, I'll be honest and say I've never heard put that way, and I love it. I absolutely love that concept because you are you are correct. Um, I know Aaron and I have talked about, you know, diversity, inclusion, um, equity in similar concepts, that this is something that should just exist everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other way that you related that really just, I loved it, is this, that it should just be as common um, to talk about mental health as we talk about heart health. Because to your point, we all have it, right? right. We all have mental health. And so um, I love that in a way it's so simplistic, and yet it's not at the same time because right. no, we don't ever actually think about it that way. So I, right. I love that. So thank you for sharing that. I also like that you made a point at the end there about it's happening more in diverse places to mm-hmm. the conversations. Um, say more about that because I really want to talk about that more. Like, what do you mean when you say that? Well, yeah, and I was actually just listening to uh, NPR, actually, the other day. So I love I listen to NPR all the time on my way, in my car, actually, wherever I'm going. And, you know, what I mean by that is that, and this is, 
adjust my thoughts, mm -hmm. right? So I'm just going to let my hair down. <laughs> can't see me. I have no hair. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like, um, okay, just follow me here for a moment. Okay, sure. Yep. I will go anywhere with you. Yes. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I feel like white adults, and I think I, I read something somewhere about this as well, but white adults are the lar largest consumer of mental health services more than other races or ethnicities, at least in, in this country. Um, now, from an economical perspective, you go where the demand is. So you see access to mental health services popping up in predominantly white spaces. And I think the more that we think creatively about access to health care, think creatively about access to mental health, um, hopefully we'll be able to uh, really begin to change the dialogue. The piece I recalled uh, from NPR was um, a program called Barbershop Therapy. And, you know, it was the concept is basically equipping barbers with mental health counseling skills, if you will. Because as we know, I mean, I haven't been to a barbershop in a long time because I just run the clippers over my head myself. But I still know that barbershops, beauty shops are places where people have conversations, have deep conversations about their life, about things that are impacting them in their lives. You know, those conversations are already happening in the barber shops, you know, for instance. And any barber, you can pluck a barber from anywhere. And, you know, I, I, I venture to say that they all have had the responsibility of being a, a mental health counselor. So this program really looks to train barbers to be able to have those types of conversations and to be able to offer additional supports and resources. So, and the barbershop, you know, that's a black man's safe space. Yeah. You know, you know, yeah. you go get your hair cut, get other things done, like shave and all of that. And you sit there and you, you're having these conversations. You know, if something's on your mind that day, you're bringing that into the barbershop, right? Um so it's it's a way of really putting mental health services in uncommon places. You know? That is so interesting. I'd not heard of that barbershop therapy, but mm -hmm. it really hits on a lot of things you were saying that we were, that we've been saying about recognizing that you need to go where the demand is, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, or where the natural places might be that that might be happening anyway, and uh, provide you know the supports and the resources in those areas and in those spaces, and instead of assuming that therapy, quote unquote, only happens in a clinical office. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. so interesting. And I, you know, I think it was um, researchers at Harvard, actually, who did this study and found that African-American barbers can play a role in, in helping tackle mental health among the African-American community. Around 63% of African-Americans still believe that mental health conditions is a sign of personal weakness. And that's according to the National Alliance um, on Mental Illness. You know, and I don't believe that that statistic is out of line that much with the overall societal views, regardless of race or ethnicity. So, you know, hopefully things like the barbershop therapy and just thinking more creatively around mental health and changing the conversation. Mental health is just like heart health. 
you have to take care of it. And when it's in decline or when something is going on, it affects you as a person and affects your body. So that's how you show up at work. Can't not. Absolutely. Particularly now Absolutely. that work and life are even more blurred than ever before. You can't read that at the door anymore because it is the same door for right. some people. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, like to your point, if this is more mainstream, right, I think that's going to lead to people feel more belonging even in the workplace, right? Because they feel like they can be their true authentic self when they show up. Right. Um, so, it's, you know, kind of really dealing with the concept of belonging, we've seen that there's in more recent years, like more and more attention is being paid to this concept, right? This this word. But unfortunately, like various employee surveys have shown us that certain populations, even with the focus from their employers, don't feel true belonging in their individual workplace. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, just even starting with what your definition of belonging is? What do you think that term means? That's a great question. And, you know, I and Aaron, you might have to help me out here because I'm remembering a quote that I think you either said, or maybe it was on your email signature or something, about um, belonging and inclusion. So, you Oh, know, about the party? About the party of the dance. The dance, yes. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's, um, it actually doesn't use the word belonging, and there's been, um, there's been some additional um, articles about that quote and what belonging would look like, but the quote itself from Verna Myers is, diversity is being invited to the party, inclusion is being asked to dance. Right, right. So that is what I think about when I think about belonging. It's it's more than just being in a physical space. It's incorporating who you are and feeling comfortable with who you are in all of your identities and feeling a sense of connectedness, you know, as well. Have I sort of arrived at feeling a sense of belonging? I, I don't know. I, I, I can't say that I have. I mean, let's face it, I'm a now middle-aged, middle-weight gay black man <laughs> from the South, right? So I'm used to not fitting in. Belonging is at least in part an, an inward journey, right? Um, and we have to cultivate better relationships with ourselves and all of our identities. And that's something that I'm, I'm still working on. So I, I think belonging, you know, at least in part begins with just you and inward and within yourself. That's very powerful and a very good point because you're right. We do tend to sometimes when we talk about belonging, focus strictly on what, what's happening in our environment that is making us feel, which is important. You know, we, we need to focus on that. But but you're right that that's, that's half of it. The other half is do you have a sense of belonging to yourself? Yeah, right. really powerful. Yeah, I I think back to um, when I first came here, actually. Uh, so I came to Ithaca, to New York, to the East Coast, all of it, in 2003. And I had spent nine years previous to that in uh, Mississippi, where I went to college, you know, and, and I, I had a, a life there. And, you know, just around the identity of being gay, you know, in the South, you know, versus being gay here, that was something that I think struck me as vastly different. You know, I didn't feel a sense of belonging in my environments there around that particular identity. 
I found community where I could, but a sense of belonging is being able to go wherever life takes you and feeling like you belong there, right? And that wasn't always the case. So I remember when I, I came here, even for the interview, I think that the the director, uh, and I didn't tell him anything about me because that's just where I was in, in my in my life, Um and he mentioned, uh, he made a comment about the LGBTQ community and about it being a, a sense of community here in Ithaca, you know, trying to sell Ithaca to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I just remember feeling for a split second mortified. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, and, but the way that he talked about it, it wasn't from a sense of othering, you know, like there's this other community that you can be a part of it was it felt very much included into the fabric of what it means to be an Ithacan and I just remember thinking wow this is very different and it's being talked about like out in the open so I just remember that um, as being um, probably my first real sense of what belonging could feel like. That's really um, neat. And to your point, it wasn't that he was telling you that because he knew that that might be something you care about, but rather he just was telling you that as part of all the things he was telling you about about the area and, and the school. And, and that's the idea of really embedding that, that appreciation of different identities into just our everyday reality, as opposed to only noting it or caring about when you have somebody in front of you <laughs> that happens to fit that identity, you know? Right. And what I love about the idea of it being presented to you during an interview process is that there's a thought to your belonging and inclusion before you even committed to coming to Cornell, right, as an employee. And so that's kind of what I like and and, and that this is something that we care about. That message is, is, is like to Aaron's point, it's embedded. It's not like maybe up in front, like, hey, let's talk about how you're going to find belonging when you get here. But like the way it's shared with you, like it's already like, hey, we care about you as an individual. We care about you as a person. Um, and, and we want you here at Cornell. That message comes through with the way other things are presented. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, Cyrus, on the flip side, you know, as you said, we don't always feel a sense of belonging. And sometimes that does happen because of whatever's going on around us or whatever messages we're getting, you know, around us. And so I'm curious, you know, you've been at Cornell a long time and you don't have to out anybody in particular (laughs) (laughs) or anything Uh in particular, but but maybe just in general for you, you know, have there been times when you, you did not feel that sense based on what was happening around you and, you know, what was missing? What could have made that better? What could have made yeah you know that's a that's a great question I'm going to try to um temper my my answer so I I think first of all let me lay the groundwork so I I think that at least for me anytime there's a transition I always sort of reassess my my feeling of of belonging and inclusion right and for a period you know, I might not feel a sense of belonging and inclusion. Um, so I, I think back to probably one of the, the most happiest moments of my adult life. 
outside of getting married. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you had to get that in there. Yeah. You had to get that in there. Yes, yeah, you, you were there, Aaron. There. So. <laughs> uh, but it was when we decided to start a family. This was a journey that was complex and in some ways just being um, part of the LGBTQ community and being two males wanting to start a family. You know, I, I think we we turned to adoption and uh, we thought of other strategies as well, but we, we actually settled on adopting and really we thought that that would be more in line with what we viewed and, and how we wanted to start our family. So, you know, anybody who's had any interaction with the foster system knows it can be very challenging, but it can also be very abrupt as well. So when our son came into our life, there wasn't really a lot of preparation. There was no preparation, actually. And it was literally one day, you know, where I'm working until eight or nine o'clock at night. And the next day, we have the possibility of really beginning to start our family. And, you know, I, I think that was, it was challenging because there's there's no script for any of us in starting a family. You know, there's some ideas, but really when you have it right in front of you and you're faced with another human being, there's there's really no script. So I think just that transition itself made me reconsider like, wow, do I really feel a sense of belonging anywhere? You know, and this was a child with disabilities. So I really had to, I couldn't just say, okay, I'm going to sign you up for school and go to school. I have to really be intentional about everything. And, you know, so I was just like, I mean, I doubt it myself many a days, you know. Um, you know, so I, I think that that was probably one of the more recent even though it's been a little while now, um, more recent times where I just felt like, wow, I, I just sort of feel out of pocket in many respects. And Cyrus, can I ask um, from a, just a deeper understanding of, of what you were going through at the time, while this was happening in your personal life, how was your work life? Was that helping with you kind of regaining some of that sense of belonging? Or was that adding to you not feeling the belonging at the time? That's a very great question. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I would have to say that I don't think that work necessarily helped the matter. There were things like I, I remember like my boss very happy about it. We had a little party. It was great, actually, right? So um, supportive in that way. But it was it was still a challenge in part because of the timing of, I mean, timing is never perfect in, in the real world. And this was at a time where I also felt like I needed to do more, right? And that has always been something internal within me. Like I had to really push myself, right? So when it came to taking family leave, for instance, I opted to do part-time, right? Because I needed to be working and I needed to prove that I belong and I didn't want anybody else you know thinking well Cyrus is is not here um, even if that is not true just I didn't want those thoughts to occupy my my brain so I 
worked part-time. Actually, that ended up being just full-time. I just worked from home <laughs> before working from home was a thing. Um, you know, where I would come into work and I would leave a half day and I would go home and I would be there at home with our son and spend time also, you know, trying to bond, but also trying to work through a lot of the trauma of being adopted and being in the foster system. So there were other complexities on top of just welcoming him into our home that we had to work through. And, you know, it was it was challenging. And, you know, I don't know what could have been different. I don't think that when we feel a sense of not belonging, that it can always be remedied by something, right? By some sort of action. Right. So I think that for me, that was a period where I was very much trying to figure out who I am as a parent and who I am as a parent with a child with disabilities who is a full time professional, also. So I think that for a period, there was this sense of trying to recapture belonging. But I, I think that once the time came, the environment was there within the workplace to help me reconnect with a sense of belonging. I, I think what I like is the message in, in, all, in your story is the idea that the sense of belonging can come and go, right, depending on what else might be happening in, in your life. And that could be work-related or it could be in your personal lives. And I think that's okay. I think that's a good message to share that, again, it talks to the whole concept that we all have mental health every single day. And so I I really like that, that you're not always going to feel a sense of belonging. And it's okay for you to take some time to work through that. Right. Um, And so I think that's a great message for for our listeners to hear. I agree, because it really is highlighting the fact that it could be a process that is influenced by whatever you're going through. (laughs) You know, whatever transitions, that was the word you used, is if you're in the process of going through a major change in your identity (laughs) in some respects, then of course that's going to influence what sense of belonging even looks like or feels like to you because it's not going to feel and look the same as it did a week ago when you weren't a parent suddenly, you know, um, or a week ago before you decided to come out or (laughs) before you decided to disclose a disability, you know, whatever it is, it's... um, what you need is going to look and feel different. And I also appreciated your point that it can't always be remedied by a single action. You know, that there's something that someone needs to do <laughs> specifically because, again, it speaks to it's an ongoing process that's sort of evolving. Absolutely. So as I was keeping that in mind, what advice would you have for our employees who maybe feeling challenged by either belonging or some of the other concepts that we talked about today? What if, if they were not feeling that? What advice would you have? So having gone through this yourself. That's, that's a great question. So I, the advice I, I would give to those with similar journeys or to my 2003 mm-hmm. self, you know, and I was just, again, transitioning to upstate New York. The message I, I would give us is simple, which is you are enough. You belong here. Oftentimes, you know, we find ourselves chasing standards of other people's ideas and ideals. And I know, I think at this point in my life, you know, I I want to live and I challenge all of us actually to strive every day to live a more authentic life, you know, and 
I feel like we, we have to be courageous enough and perhaps curious enough to step into our own experiences, which is, you know, free from the confines of other people's expectations. You know, I, I think um, something that I think often about is a, is a quote by Maya Angelou. The greatest agony is an untold story. And I'm slowly figuring out that I actually like to talk, which is a bit surprising for me to think about, um, in part because I enjoy being quiet so much, and I enjoy my solitude. But I, I think the message would be, find a way to tell your story, whether it's talking, podcasting, connecting with individuals one-on-one, -on -one, you know, find a way to tell your story because it is important and I think, you know, being at Cornell, an uh, institution of higher education, it's critical that we all learn from each other's stories. I think we, it just makes us better as professionals, better as students, you know, better as a community, really, to learn and, and thrive off of each other's experiences. That's really beautiful. I really like how you put that, Silas, and I think it begs the question, you know, you're right, that in our, in our environment, we need to find ways to feel more courageous to, to tell our story in whatever way that looks. So for me, it also begs the question, so then what, what can we all be doing to help somebody tell their story? And, you know, when I say we all, I'm thinking, you know, in our, in our work environment, that it, that it is such a part of our lives. As we've already talked about, we can't leave work. Work, you know, is, is a part of us. And, and we want people at work to feel like they can tell their story. So... You know, what suggestions or advice do you have for, you know, managers, supervisors, colleagues to help people feel like they can tell their story? First of all, I, w I would say value your team, you know, value their experiences and, and recognize that your team are people first. You know, we are complicated, multifaceted, sometimes messy oftentimes overworked, but at the end of the day, we are people. And in the midst of all of that, you know, we show up, we bring our best selves. And I would say, you know, it's okay if our best doesn't always correlate with 100%. Sometimes my best is only 75% in any given day. That's okay. As we're talking about work-life balance, we all have to figure out life and work for ourselves and what feels good for us and how we can show up and bring our best selves. And I would say also to maybe espouse some of the characteristics of a servant leader. I think that that's really important. And, you know, it's a way to share not only the power dynamic of a particular office setting or workplace, but to share values, to share stories for everyone to feel comfortable going to one another and sharing their experiences. So I, I think we have to create an environment where people feel comfortable communicating. I, I always talk about Cornell's motto, any person any study. And I, I want to continue to make Cornell a place where any person can find community, opportunity, and purpose, not only for our students, but also for our faculty and staff. I think that is absolutely the perfect message to end 
our conversation today. Um, Cyrus, I want to thank you for joining Aaron and I today. This conversation, I think, I, I speak for Aaron too, that we could probably have another hour, <laughs> if not even longer. Um, so well, thank you for coming. I just want to say, what you said at the end there, I think we need to message, you know, Ezra Cornell, who's on the board of trustees, about maybe adapting that motto, any person, any purpose. I'm yes. liking that. Yeah, yes. any person, any community. I'm really, I think you got to hashtag that. Yes, <laughs> you know what? Let's do it. Yeah. I have to figure out hashtagging, but once yes. I do... <laughs> We're on it after that. <laughs> yep. Thank you both for having me. This has been a wonderful experience. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I'm glad. So happy to have you, Cyrus. So happy to see you again, to be with you, to share space and time with you. Yes, absolutely. It's always a pleasure. Anytime I'm in close proximity, Erin, it's always a pleasure. <laughs> and I always am sure to have fun. So. <laughs> Wow, Erin, what an absolutely amazing conversation we just had with yes. Cyrus. Yes, definitely. Um, and as I said, I think we could have kept that conversation going so much longer. Oh, easily. Yeah. Easily. So what was your what was one of your biggest takeaways? You know, as somebody who has known Cyrus a long time, you know, um, there would often be times that we would have half-hour meetings and they would turn into an hour and a half right. because <laughs> we would just get talking about everything, you know, life, work, everything. And, and I, I so appreciated him even having this conversation with us because as he said himself he he does have anxiety he is a quiet person those are things i've known about him for a very long time but i think that i really appreciate his own way of of sort of i guess coming to terms with those parts of his identity but then figuring out how to still be as he put it courageous and curious to step into his own experiences and tell his own stories i i just Again, it's more meaningful for me because I've known him, but it's really neat to see how he has evolved to be this this person who can still tell his story because it's an important story, but do it in a way that feels okay and comfortable for him. And then it's it's great because that he lives the message that he actually shared with the employees, right? Because one of his messages was, don't be afraid to share your story. And here he is kind of living that. And yes. I think that's amazing. Yes. Um, I'll have to tell you, I had like, there's so many takeaways for yeah. me. And, and I think the one at the very beginning of our conversation was this idea of having a pity party. You know, we're going to have a good time while we're in that party, but yep. then we're not staying in there forever. Right. What a great message. Something that I actually am going to take back and share with my own children, I think. Yeah. Oh, I completely agree with that. I, I think for someone who came into parenting in a very unique way, mm -hmm. as he did, right, when he adopted his first child, that child was not a baby. No. You know, and so, and as, by his own, as he said, he, he just was suddenly a parent. Right. <laughs> right. You know, he didn't get, you know, eight, nine months to, to prepare, prepare for right? it. He just suddenly was a parent, but yet to hear him have these pearls of wisdom mm -hmm. <laughs> that he has developed from being a parent, particularly a parent of a child with different for disability, yeah. it's really kind of cool just yeah. to hear this wisdom that has come from that, you know. Yeah, and I think he mentioned that that's, that's because, like, his work and his personal life kind of, like, mingle with each other, right? And some, some parts of his work come into play in his personal life, and some of his personal life he's able to take to work and really help other students as well. So I think that was kind of a great... Um, 
Any other any other uh, tidbits? You know, it's hard not to really talk about how he talked about belonging. We've had so many great conversations with people about that topic, and it never ceases to amaze me that everyone brings up a different aspect of it. You know, and, and with him, which just shows you how complex and multifaceted this idea of belonging is. But I think what I, some of the things I most appreciated was he really spoke about how belonging is not something that you can necessarily achieve and then you're done. Right. You know, you, you now belong. Right. No, yeah. So that's that it. You simple. must belong for the no. rest of your life. Yeah. It, it's going to ebb and flow depending on what's going on around you. And what he really hit on that we don't always talk about enough, it also ebbs and flows depending on what's going on inside of you. Yeah, that it's part of it is an internal journey as well, an inward focus. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that was a great thing for our listeners and, and for others to know as well, that sense of belonging can come and go. Um, and, and then the other thing for me that really stood out was this idea that we all have mental health, right? Like that's a concept that I don't think I've ever heard put that way. Um, we talk about mental health as a separate thing, and it's not this idea that we all have it, right? It's very, it's very uh, unique in in terms of how we talk about belonging as a whole. That you know what, this is something that we should all be doing naturally. It should just be a part of our work. It shouldn't be something separate that we do. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I love that he focuses on mental health in a very similar concept. That it's something we all have, right? It's not a separate focus for today, this one hour, this one minute. I'm going to focus on my mental health. It doesn't work that way. Which, to hear him describe it that way, it actually makes it all the more clear to me why, you know, our Surgeon General would be creating a framework for mental health in the workplace, right? Because it really is speaking to the fact that you cannot leave your mental health at the door. It is always with you, and just as your physical health might impact how much you can show up to work sometimes, or, you know, whether you might need a sick day, whether you might need to take medical leave, it's not that much different when you think about it from a mental health standpoint, that there's going to be days that you might not be able to be your full self. You're going to be going through things that will impact how you can work. Mm-hmm. And as he said, whether you could give 100%. Right. Or, or 70. Might, yeah, whether you're, you're, you're 100% this week is actually 70%. But really, it's 100% because of everything else you have going on exactly. around you. That needed to be said, and we don't say that enough. You know. I agree with you. And I think, and then the last bit that really kind of stood out to me was this idea of barbershop therapy, right? I think that was a unique concept. Uh-huh. Again, something that we've not discussed before. And really, I mean, if I if I bring it down to a, a concept, it's this idea that a lot of life and a lot of conversations happen in just everyday interactions, right? So in this, in in his example, it was just the barbershop where you do talk about life and. Um, And yet I can see this kind of uh, transitioning over to like the school systems, right? Teachers have a lot of interactions with students that are outside of the curriculum conversations. Even with our colleagues in the work setting, we have a lot of conversations that are outside of, you know, this project or, or that PowerPoint or that presentation. And so how do we, as, a, as an organization, really dive into this concept, right? How do we develop our own employees to be able to have these interactions, which really could impact an individual sense of belonging? Oh, particularly when it comes to managers and people leaders. Correct. You know, yeah. absolutely. How do, we, how do we help them not just sort of recognize that this is going to be part of the relationship with an employee, but but to feel comfortable enough to embrace it. You know, to your point, that means they need the supports, they need the resources, they need the skill development so that they can embrace that part of that role. Anything else for you that you really enjoyed? 
you know, I just, I just in general just really appreciated hearing, you know, his views on things. Um, the beauty of having these interviews is that it gives us a chance sometimes to talk to people that you might not hear from on a regular basis because they don't hold a particular position or a particular title, you know, at the workplace. But yet, so many gems, yes. <laughs> you know, and pearls of wisdom from somebody who's just living a typical employee life, <laughs> you know, every day. But yet there's so much beneath the surface that can really help inform how we're leading, how we're making decisions, what we're doing. And that's what I think I, I just find most powerful. Is it? And it further illustrates his point is that we need to be creating more spaces where people can communicate. Right? So there's nothing just fall on your quote-unquote leaders to do all the communicating. Right? We all have to have that space to communicate because we're, we're going to learn some valuable lessons from each other. And allow an opportunity for individuals to share their stories yes. too, right? Yes. So, yeah. yeah. And so I, I have to say that, I, I again, back to Cyrus, can't thank you enough, Cyrus, for sharing your story with us because... Uh, as we've mentioned multiple times, that we could have kept this conversation going for another hour yeah. and that probably even still would not have been enough. <laughs> nope. Nope. Absolutely. Great conversation. Great day. Thank you all for listening. This podcast is a production of the Department of Inclusion and Belonging in collaboration with the Cornell Broadcast Studio. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and submit a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and the show. For latest updates on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging at Cornell, be sure to visit diversity.cornell.edu. My name is Toro Patel. And my name is Erin Sambuches. We would also like to thank our co-producer and sound engineer, Bert Odom-Reed, as always, for making us sound amazing each and every episode. Thanks, Thanks Bert. Bert.